passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning. Uh, it is... Um, it is good to, to gather together and worship, and as we, uh, as we jump into God's Word, I just want to uh, take a moment to, to pray uh, for our time in His Word, and um, as, as I was preparing this sermon uh, for, uh, for this morning, I was, I was really struck. Um, it's, a, it's a really, it's a, in one sense it's a simple passage, in another sense it's a, it's a challenging passage, but one of the things that really struck me as, as Jude talks a lot about judgment is um, that Jesus has borne our judgment. Um, if we are found in him, uh, that on the cross, uh, we, we escape judgment, which is an incredible, incredible gift. And, and uh, we're going to look at that this morning. One of the things uh, that, that struck me from that song that we just sang was, was the line, um, my hope was secure when there my Savior prayed, not your will, or not my will, but yours to be done. And... Uh, we went through the Gospel of Mark about a year and a half ago, and, and one of the things that I, I, I just so appreciated from that Gospel was the reminder that, that Jesus crucified his own desires in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross. That right there in that moment where he said, not my will, but yours be done, Lord, was the moment of assurance that Jesus was going to fulfill his Father's plan. And so as we approach God's word, um, we do so with confidence because of what Jesus has done for us. Would you pray with me as we jump into scripture this morning? Father, it is, it is such a good gift uh, to have your word and to be able to gather around it, to open it up. And Lord, I am, I'm blown away that you have given us your spirit and that you still speak today to your church. And God, it is, um, it's not only a wonderful gift, but it is, it is a, a great source of assurance and hope that you haven't left us as orphans, but that your presence is still with us, even as Jesus says to the end of the age. And so, God, as we look at this weighty topic this morning, um, the reality of judgment, we ask that you would be present with us and that this time this morning would, would stir our, our hearts and our affections for what Jesus has done for us in the gospel, the incredible love that Christ has shown us in the cross and in the resurrection. God, we ask that you would bless this time now in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, uh, blind spots are, are one of those things that uh, it seems like every car has them, and uh, it varies from car to car, and if you don't know where your blind spots are, so you can check where they are and, and make sure uh, that you're not doing something that you're going to later re uh, regret, it, is, uh, it can be a, a very serious thing. And I think that that's the same thing that is true for all of life. It's not just blind spots in vehicles that can be deadly, but also blind spots in life. Because by their very definition, we don't know what we don't see. And that, I think, in a sense, is what Jude's passage this morning is about. It's, a, I think, a helpful framework for understanding uh, our, our few verses here this morning in the book of 
Jude. Uh, our church has been working our way through the, the book of Jude for the last month, month and a half or so, and one of the things that we've seen over and over and over again as we've been in this book is that Jude, even though it's just a, a chapter long, Jude is concerned with the people of God preserving the faith that has been entrusted to us, protecting the gospel from those who would distort it. And that's true in this morning's passage as well. Jude 14 through 16, as I mentioned earlier, it's a very unique passage because in one sense it's very, very uh, challenging to understand, and yet in a in a different way, it's also very, very easy to understand. And, and we'll get into what I mean exactly by that here in, in a few moments. But, but Jude, is, he's, he's talking about future judgment. He's, he's talking about what awaits those who distort the gospel, who change the gospel, who, who never believe in the gospel. And he's saying, you know what, you can be assured of this future judgment when Jesus returns. And I think if there's a one, one blind spot in the church today, it's this. It's the topic of judgment. And there are many people who bear the name Christian today, those who are in the church, who aren't sure about the idea of judgment. Either they, they aren't sure if it will actually happen, or they have this misguided understanding of what it will be like when it happens. And, and Jude hopes to address that as he is writing to the church. But that's not the only blind spot that he addresses here in verses 14 through 16. He, he says that some people who are, are bearing the name of Jesus, that are calling themselves Christian, they, they might have this blind spot when it comes to future judgment, yes, but then, then other people have this blind spot with what Jerry Bridges refers to as respectable sins. These are, are sins that, that we might tolerate in our life, or at least we're more willing to tolerate because they're not as distasteful as other sins. And again, Jude addresses that in this passage as well in verse 16. And so that's kind of what I want us to do this morning. I want us to look at both of these blind spots. I want to look at first the blind spot of judgment in the church, verses 14 and 15. And then after that, look at the blind spot of what I would refer to as respectable sins or sins that we sometimes can give a free pass to in the church. And that's what we're going to be, be focusing on this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to, to follow along as I read aloud. Uh, starting in verses 14, um, and I'll read through 16 of the book of Jude. It says this, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. I want us to first start with this blind spot of judgment found in verses 14 through 15. I mentioned that in one sense this passage is, is really straightforward, and that's because Jude's message is relatively clear. He's telling us in verses 14 and 15 that behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. So Jude's message right here is very clear. Jude is communicating that Jesus is coming back and that when he does return, he's going to judge those who are ungodly in their words and in their deeds. But this passage 
is also somewhat confusing because while Jude's message is clear, the, the way he goes about it can be a little confusing for us. Jude quotes from this book that was common in the first century. We, we don't have it in our Bibles. It's called the book of First Enoch. And this leads to a, a host of questions from people sometimes about, well, does Jude believe that First Enoch should be in the Bible? And if, if Jude does, what does that mean? Does that mean First Enoch should be in the Bible, or does that mean that Jude shouldn't be in the Bible? And it leads to all of these questions about whether we can actually trust the Bible that has been given to us. And we can, we can look at this for a, for a long time, and, and we, we did a couple weeks ago because Jude, this is the second time that Jude does this. He quotes a book that's not found in the Bible. I want to just briefly address what Jude is doing here. First, let's, let's just differentiate between the book of First Enoch and then the person of Enoch. The person of Enoch is, is found in the Bible in Genesis 5, uh, where the Bible tells us that, that Enoch lived, that he walked with God, and then he was no more. And, and the assumption is, of course, that he was taken up into heaven just exactly like Elijah does. Now, as, as you may guess, if that's all that's dedicated to Enoch, it's, it's piqued the interest of, of Jewish writers throughout the centuries. And so by the time of Jesus, there, there was this huge tradition that had been created about what exactly happened to Enoch. What, what, what did it mean for Enoch to walk with God and, and for God to take him away? After all, it's not every day that someone is just taken up into heaven like the Bible tells us that happened to Enoch. So about 250 years before the time of Jesus, there was this book that was written expanding the story of Enoch. And it was filled with prophecies from Enoch, or alleged to be from Enoch, parables, um, pronouncements, interpretations of the Bible. And it was, it was written from the vantage point of Enoch, even though it wasn't written by him. And it bears the name First Enoch, because it was the first uh, of a, a number of books that was credited to, to Enoch in those days. And by the time that Jude is writing, this book had become really popular in Jewish circles. People would have, have known about it. They didn't consider it to be scripture, but they, 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 they had it on their bedside. That's, a, that's not, they didn't have it on their bedside. It wasn't that popular. Jude and his audience, they would have been familiar with it at the very least. And we can assume that that's why Jude quotes it here. It was a, no, it was a known commodity. People knew it. And, and what's more, it actually proved his point. And so we shouldn't be alarmed that Jude is quoting from 1 Enoch, and, and it's chapter 1, verse 9. We shouldn't be concerned that he calls Enoch a prophet. Just because the Bible quotes something that's not found in the Bible doesn't mean that it should therefore also be in the Bible. We saw that a couple weeks ago with what Jude is saying. In the book of Titus, Paul does this as well. He actually goes a step further. He quotes this pagan from Crete and, and calls him a prophet because what the prophet says ends up being true. And I think that that's what Jude is doing here as well. He's recognizing this unique status of Enoch from Genesis 5, and he references 1 Enoch chapter 1, verse 9, and says that his words are prophetic and they're true. Everything that, that Enoch says here, or what is alleged to be from Enoch, is true. What's more, the way Jude writes his book his book, his letter, shows that he doesn't even believe that this is to be considered Scripture. There's this unique structure that we see in the book of Jude, where Jude quotes from the Old Testament three times, and then he refers to a modern-day interpretation or illustration. And then he does the exact same thing. He quotes from the Old Testament three times, and then he finds a modern-day interpretation or illustration. 
So Jude is not considering first Enoch to be scripture, but he is saying that this proves my point about what is coming. There's two parts of Jude's message here. I want us to consider both. First is this, Jesus will return for judgment. Jesus will return for judgment. This is the message that Jude makes abundantly clear in verses 14 and 15. It says this, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly. Now, if you're a betting man or you're a betting woman, there's no such thing as a sure thing, but this is a sure thing. That Jesus is going to return, and when he returns, every single person will stand before him to give an account of their lives. Every word you have spoken, every action that you have taken, every thought, every moment will be laid before Jesus and will be answered for. And I don't know about you, but can you imagine the terror of that day? It's a terrifying day. No wonder the Old Testament describes the day of the Lord, the day that God will return as this moment of of terror and of weeping. Consider just what the prophets say over and over and over in the Old Testament. First in Isaiah, wail for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Jeremiah, that day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, the day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Ezekiel, for the day is near, the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Joel, alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. We would do well to remember the message of Amos when Amos says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. This is a a neglected message in the church today, the terror of that day. And if we we believe the gravity of that day, wouldn't our our gatherings look, look different? The fact that we are gathering together with, with this awesome, holy God who cannot stand evil in his presence. And, and we, would, we would quote along with the psalmist in Psalm 15, who can, walk, who, who can ascend into God's presence? Who can go into his holy hill? It's only those who are blameless. And then we look at our own lives and we realize that without the person of Jesus, that doesn't describe me. That I, Jordan, have no business taking the name of the king of the cosmos on my lips if it weren't for Jesus. This past week, I, uh, I encountered this quote um, by, by Charles Misner, and it was concerning the faith of Albert Einstein. And he did, I, I think it gets at the heart of, of the unbelief that we can tend to have concerning just the gravity of who God is the weight of who God is and how that plays out in judgment. He writes this, The design of the universe is very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion, although he strikes me as a basically very religious man. He must have looked at what the preacher said about God and and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined, and they were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt that the religions he'd run across did not have proper respect for the author of the universe. 
judgment awaits all of humanity. And Jude focuses on these two specific areas. That's our second point from verses 14 and 15. Judgment comes upon all evil deeds and also comes upon all evil words. Consider again what Jude writes. To execute judgments on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I think we can give ourselves permission to recognize that Jude goes out of his way to word that in an almost awkward way to get his point across. Four times over the course of just this this very short section, Jude uses the word ungodly. And, and, And he's describing this massive chasm, this massive gap between the holiness of who God is and who we are. He doesn't want to leave any doubt about judgment that awaits those who deny Jesus with their words or with their actions. And that's what we see over and over and over again in the book of Jude. It's these people who are distorting the gospel by saying something different, and they're living their lives in a different way, in a way that that God doesn't want for those who would follow him. And Jude is saying, you know, you're distorting the gospel. And you will be held account for all your evil words and all your evil deeds. What's more, he says that those words that are spoken, when you twist God's words, those are actually harsh words that have been spoken against God himself. Whenever we mischaracterize God, we're speaking against him. Whenever we speak flippantly about God, we're speaking against him. These half-hearted truths that we might spout about who God is, we're, we're speaking against who God is. And because of that day, or because of that, judgment is coming on that day. And what a, what a terrible, awful day that will be. And if we're left in this spot where we think, you know what, I'm, I'm not perfect but I'm doing okay. Jude addresses that. In verse 16, he, he, he pulls back the curtain and reveals five ways that we can do things. And we might not think it's a big deal, but he reveals how God actually sees these respectable sins. So that's what I want us to look at here in, in verse 16. Let's go ahead and, and, and read this. Uh, these sins that we are tempted to ignore in our own lives. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own, des- own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. The first thing Jude addresses is the danger of a grumbling spirit. The danger of a grumbling spirit. Let's be honest. There's a there's a lot to grumble about, a lot to complain about in the world today. And it doesn't matter if you watch Fox News or MSNBC. It seems like the 24-7 news cycle is all about telling you something somewhere is worthy of you complaining and getting worked up about. 
we live in a culture that is built upon grumbling and upon complaining. It's the air that we breathe day in and day out. To not complain is actually exceedingly weird in our culture today. Here's a, here's a test for you. I want you to try to go a full week without complaining once. A full week without complaining once. Don't complain about the weather. Don't complain about politics. Don't complain about traffic. Don't complain about your coworkers. Don't complain about your boss. Don't complain about your employees. Don't complain about your child getting out of bed too early. I say that from personal experience. Don't complain about the play calling of your favorite team. Don't complain, I know, this is a little too far, right? Don't complain about the officiating for your favorite team either. And that includes just in a few hours, I guess an hour or so, once NFL games start. Don't complain about the food that your mom and dad make you if you are a child. Don't complain about anything. Don't even complain with this half smile and you can just pass it off as, ah, it's just joking. Can you believe those people? Why would they think that way? Oh, don't worry, I was just joking. Don't complain, and we'll see how normal a grumbling spirit is. Unsurprisingly, the danger of a grumbling spirit found in the Bible as well. The book of Exodus, the book of Numbers, all tell, tell us all about this grumbling spirit from those people that God had saved out of slavery in Egypt, and, and God had done tons for them, and yet it was nothing was good enough for them. God saves them out of Egypt, and they complain that they have to walk. God gives them food day in and day out, and they complain that it's the wrong food. God is with them, but it seems like they have no clear direction. And you know what God does to that generation? It's what we see here in Numbers. How long shall the wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of this people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness And of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. God destroys them. He destroys them in part for their grumbling spirit. You see how serious this type of heart, this type of spirit is in God's eyes. It's offensive to God because a grumbling spirit shows a lack of gratitude for what God is doing in your life, what God has done in your life, how God is at work in the world. And when we complain about this, then that God, the ruler of the cosmos, we're saying that God doesn't know what he's doing. That God's not doing a good job at his job of being God. Similarly related, we have a second danger. That is the danger of a fault-finding disposition. That's what Jude is referring to here when he says that these people are malcontents. This actually takes things a step further. He takes this picture of the grumbling spirit from the Old Testament. Now he's borrowing this image from his day and age, from the popular culture of that day. This is something that goes even further, and it says, even when things are going really well, I'll still find something to complain about. I'll still find something that is wrong. Dick Lucas was a pastor um, He's a late pastor from from the UK, and he shares this quote 
of, of how one Greek defined this word that we have translated as malcontents. He says this, The malcontent will say to a person that brings him a portion from their own table, Well, you didn't want to, me to eat your soup or your steak with you. Otherwise, you would have asked me to dine with you in person. When, your wife is, when his wife is kissing him, he says, I wonder whether she kisses me from her heart. When he finds money in the street, it's, ah, but I never found more money. When they bring him good news that his son is born to him, he says, but you're forgetting that one day he'll take half my fortune. This is the heart that sees something good and says, but it's not good enough. God has given me all this, but he hasn't given me that. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 73. It's, uh, it's one of my favorite psalms for this very reason. Asaph He's very, very open and candid and honest, and and he says that that his natural inclination in his life is to see what other people have and to complain about his lot in life. Just consider a couple words here from Psalm 73. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Behold, these are wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches, all in vain. I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Asaph is saying that when he sees other people that don't have a care in the world, they don't care about following Jesus, and he looks at how good and easy and blessed it seems that their life is, that his his heart's default state is to say, God, that's not fair. What's the point of me following you if this is what's going to happen to those who don't follow you? No wonder he says, my feet almost stumbled. He's describing this, this fault-finding disposition that, that God, the way you're treating me, isn't good enough. Even though God's been immeasurably kind to us. Nitpicking. Looking for ways that God could have treated us better in our lives. And Jude says, hey, beware of that fault-finding disposition. Third danger he addresses is the danger of following your evil heart. That's what he has in mind when he talks about these, these evil desires. This is something that Jude has talked about over and over and over in this book. It's one of the recurring messages of Jude, is that there is this war within each and every one of us, the war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. There's this war between who's going to sit on the throne of my life. Is it going to be God or is it going to be me? Who gets the final say? And Jude says, beware. Beware of that war in your heart. Because every single one of us has areas of our lives where we still cling to the throne and say, God, you can be Lord of my life in this area, in this area, in this area, in this area, but not this. And it doesn't matter if it is finances, it is the control of our free time, it's the control of our daily schedule, it's our idle thoughts that we have when we have a moment of downtime, whatever it is, Jude says that we must cede control of our entire lives to King Jesus. Beware of the danger of following your evil hearts. Fourth, Jude addresses the danger of boasting. In his church, there were apparently these people who had had twisted the the truth of the gospel and said that they knew that the true way, and and they, because they knew the true way or what the true way was, uh, they were smarter than other people. 
And if you wanted to be smart, you would listen to them because they had the, the real stuff. So come and listen to me. And there's this never-ending temptation in the church to exalt ourselves rather than to exalt Jesus. To receive the gratitude of other people for how God is using you as gratitude for who you are and, and for the greatness, not of God, but the greatness of self. And sometimes it's actually the opposite. We don't boast by talking about how good we are. We actually boast by allowing other people to boast for us. And so we'll tear ourselves down in front of other people so that they can make those boasts for us. So that they can say, no, 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 that's, that's not who you are. You're actually really good at that. And we steal glory from the one who deserves it alone. Jude mentions one final danger and that is the danger of, of favoritism. A question for you to f- reflect upon. How often do you talk to new people? And I'm not talking about visitors or guests at a, at a church, but just people you don't know really well. How often do you talk to those people as we get together on Sundays? How intentional are you about building relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ who you don't know very well? that don't have a lot, of common, a lot of things in common with you outside of the Sunday morning gathering. At its heart, this is the danger of favoritism in the church. To just stay within our small little groups of people that we are comfortable with rather than building relationships with the diverse, as, as Paul describes it in Ephesians, the multifaceted people of God. Jude, Jude, apparently there were people in his church who were, who were flattering the wealthiest members of the church so that way they could get an end. And I think that's, that's really interesting. It probably could be its own little point here, this idea of, of flattering others. And uh, Last night I, I was making some cookies at our house and we told our three kids that uh, they're not allowed to have cookies until today and, and yet I gave them a little taste of cookie dough because I always eat cookie dough and my wife never, I don't know why she doesn't. But uh, it's probably one of the most contentious points of our marriage. But I give, <laughs> that's not true. Actually, it might be. <laughs> but I give the kids a little bit of cookie dough because you've you got to raise them right. And so I'm giving the kids this cookie dough, and, and one of them comes up to me afterward, um, even, and he says, Dad, I, I know I'm not supposed to have a cookie tomorrow, or until tomorrow. Yeah, you're right. And uh, Dad, you just, you did a really good job. Those, those cookies are really good, and, and I just love that, that cookie dough. I'm like, okay. Five minutes later, he comes back. Dad, I know I'm not supposed to have a cookie until tomorrow, but that cookie dough is, it was really good. I just want you to know how good you, I mean, he didn't say it exactly like that. He's three. But just this idea of flattery to get what we want in the church. And, and, and Jude says, hey, sometimes there are these people, they're, they're flattering so that they can play favorites, and sometimes we play favorites, sometimes we flatter others to, 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 to get to our own means and our, our own agenda accomplished. And Jude says, look out, avoid that, don't fall into that trap. And here's the sobering reality. When I read verse 16, Just taking a step back, 
Verse 16 was one of the easiest parts of a sermon I've ever written. Because I was just able to talk from personal experience about the ways that my heart grumbles, about the ways that I feel like God hasn't been good enough to me, about the war within my own heart between the kingdom of God and kingdom of self, about the ways that I've worded things in such a way that makes me look really impressive, and of my temptation to play favorites. And Jude's message here is this really sobering one of the reality of judgment that awaits those who are ungodly. And if we look at Jude in the context of the entire Bible, we see that it's true for all of us. In fact, the message of the, the Bible tells us that there's only one. There's only one who wasn't guilty of these things. There's only one who can stand in that awful day. There's only one who throughout history, his, his own life never grumbled, never complained, even though Isaiah describes his life in this way, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. There's only one who never succumbed to fault-finding with God's plan, his lot in life ordained by God, even though it was the will of the Lord to crush him. For God has put him to grief. There is only one who never refused to obey the will of God in his life. Not that he wasn't tempted, not that there wasn't this battle in his heart between what he wanted and what God had for him, but every single moment of his life, he said, just like he said in the garden, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There's only one who never boasted, never sought a position above his own, but instead actually left the rightful place so that he could come and save us. Though he was in the form of God, did not account quality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And there is only one who never played favorites, but welcomed all people into his family including the outcast, including those who were far from God, including those who were despised and thought to be too far gone for God to actually do something in their lives to the point that the, the religious people actually looked at him and criticized him over it. We see this in the Gospels. And as Jesus reclined a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
And Jesus, for his entire life, from beginning to end, was lived in perfect obedience to God. The only one in history who did not deserve the awfulness of the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day of darkness, the day of despair. And yet we read this. When it was noon, there was darkness over the whole land for three hours, and at 3 p.m. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst, and a jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What does Jesus mean when he says, It is finished? It is finished. He means that he, the perfect one, bore the wrath of God, the awful day of the Lord, this day of darkness, despair, forsakenness. He bore it for anyone who would be found in him. Whereas Paul is writing to the church in Colossae as he describes it, he says, if you come to Jesus in repentance and faith saying that Jesus, you are my king, then you who were dead in your sin, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jude makes it clear that the day of the Lord will be an awful one. It will be an awful one. Every misspoken word, every regrettable action, every wayward thought brought to account unless, unless it has already been brought to account in the death of Jesus on that awful day of the Lord where judgment was poured out on him on the cross. Charles Spurgeon was a pastor in the 1800s and Uh, One of my favorite descriptions, I just love this picture of what Jesus did on the cross. Charles Spurgeon simply wrote, he drank damnation dry. I love that picture. That he took the cup of God's wrath that was reserved for us and he drank it to its very dregs. He left nothing in the cup for you to face for you to have to swallow yourself. And in drinking damnation dry, he didn't just take the punishment for what you've done before you came to Jesus, but also what you do now and what you do in the future because he drank damnation dry. The awful day of judgment reserved for you has been fully borne by Jesus on the cross. And because of that, the day of the Lord It doesn't have to be this awful, terrible day. It can be a day of rejoicing. The nations may wail, but the redeemed from the nations can rejoice. That's really the message of of Jude. It's it's a sobering one. It's this, this picture of the awfulness of judgment and yet the awesomeness of who Jesus is. 
In fact, that's what I just want us to take away this morning. An awful judgment is born by an awesome Savior. An awful judgment is born by an awesome Savior. What about you? As we close, consider these words from Jonathan Edwards. They were written nearly 300 years ago. They're so relevant today as they were back then. He writes this, The experience of all people throughout history reveals that every person is on the very brink of eternity, and their next step may be into afterlife. The unseen, unthought of ways and means of persons going suddenly out of this world are innumerable and inconceivable. Unconverted men and women walk over the pit of judgment on a rotten covering. And there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they will not bear their weights. And they have no idea where these weak spots are. The arrow of death fly unseen at noonday. The sharpest sight cannot discern it. And now you have an extraordinary opportunity. A day wherein Christ has thrown the doors of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying out with a loud voice to poor rebels. Many are daily coming from the east and west and north and south. Many that were very late in the same miserable condition that you are now in are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him who has loved them. And have been washed from their sins in, their, in his own blood and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. How awful it is to be left behind at such a day. To see so many others feasting while you are pining and perishing. To see so many rejoicing and singing for joy in heart while you have cause to mourn for sorrow of hearts and how for vexation of spirit. How can you rest one moment in such a condition. An awful judgment is born by an awesome Savior. This is an unfathomable gift of grace and mercy. And today we have an extraordinary opportunity, whether it's for the first time or the 10,000th time in our lives, to cling to the gospel. To cling to what Jesus has done for us. An awful judgment is born by an awesome Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the unfathomable gift of sending Jesus to save us. Thank you for this good news, for this gospel. And God, I ask that you would help each and every one of us to see, to examine our hearts and our lives of, of where we still are holding out in our rebellion against you. That we would lay our weapons down. And that we would kneel before the true king. Help us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.